fantasy and some flights. Exploring the realms of beer, board games, books, and bourbon. Welcome to another episode of the Fantasy on Some Flights podcast. I'm Nelson. I'm Dalton. And today we have another board game episode for you. The next episode in our little mini-series that we're doing all around game design. Mm-hmm. So today we are talking with Sherwin Matthews, who is the lead designer for Steamforge Games, who has many titles under his belt, such as Bard Song, which is his most uh, recent. He's done mm-hmm. all of the Horizon Zero Dawns, the Resident Evils, just like these big epic box games. And so it's a little bit yeah. different than you know Teradice, who has reached their funding goal. By the way, congratulations! I think by the congrats yeah, to Teradice, go team. So he's been in the industry. I think he has about eleven games not including expansions accredited to Sherwin. And so we're going to have a discussion with him all about game design. Yeah. I've been really enjoying this series, just the idea for the series. You know, I'm tooting my our own horn a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> we're that, great. I know. Yeah, it's really fun. But like, it, it, it's, this is a really cool um, stretch for us, right? Getting outside of just like critiquing games and starting to talk about game design. Um, it's also like a personal interest for us and in that we've done like right. these little whiteboard designs and stuff before. No, never anything serious, but like just enough to where like it's a, it's a really fun conversation to get engaged with. So I've been enjoying it. I hope you all are enjoying it too. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, at least we know one person is enjoying these episodes. So that's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> Not even two. You can't even commit to two people enjoying it. Well, I haven't it. heard just, it yet. So, <laughs> no. Excellent. All right. Ask me what I'm drinking. Oh, yeah. So, uh, what's on your flight tonight? Well, on my flight. So, this is a um, whiskey that I got uh, because you visited. And so, I wanted to pick up a rye um, for us to try together. Um, and I think we both really liked it. So this is Elevation 5003 Distillery, um, and, th- and this is a this is a Colorado distillery, which, like I said, I've had some misses with. Um, but I did not feel like this is a miss. So this is out of Fort Collins. Um, it's a it's a town just like maybe 45 minutes north of where I'm at. Um, this is a straight rye whiskey that is finished with maple staves, um, and we've had on the podcast before. Um, finishes before um that are like like this style right they're like the stave style um where instead of being finished in a different um like barrel it's being like finished with like extra pieces of wood or whatever and this one imparted like a lot of sweetness like a lot more than i was really expecting i think it's like on the verge of being too much mm-hmm. it's like yeah it might be too much if you just like weren't aware of it if, <laughs> like, if you like tasted it you'd be like what is this like syrupy like sweetness that right I'm if you're made aware of it and you go into it with that and you have like kind of this open mind of like this might be just like a little bit towards like an old fashioned or something that has like a like a simple syrup in it, then it's really, really nice. You know, it it's balances really well with like the rye. It has like some other really good like flavors in it. It has like kind of like a dried leaf um type like finish to it. And like maybe just like a touch of like that like sweetness, you know, that like you're left with where you're like, is that it makes you want to drink water where you're like, is that like a little like overly <laughs> right. sweet? Yeah. It, it, like it rides that line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But overall, I really liked it. I'd be, you know, happy to hear your thoughts. I think for for myself, it was probably like a three cheers. Like I think I would be happy to to buy a bottle of this again. Yeah, can I see the bottle again? I'm we we did a like a flight tasting, and so okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was a three cheers for me as well. So yeah, yeah, I, I it it was significantly different than what I was expecting to get out of a rye, and so mm-hmm. <laughs> so that that was aggressive and. T- jarring at first but it, it, it was, was really yeah. nice after you kind of you know took a step back drank some water and then tried it again and so yeah. <laughs> going into it 
Uh, it's not that spicy peppery flavors that I was expecting. It, it was mm-hmm. it was pretty smooth too. I thought so. Yeah, yeah. You, like when you taste it in the flight, you're like, "Is this one of the bourbons?" Yeah, because like, <laughs> <laughs> we had like a, we had we tried like maybe four or five different like whiskeys. We had them all set out, and, and yeah, I remember thinking that too. Of like, did I? Is this one of the bourbons that I poured? Like, yeah, and, and it's not. It's it's a straight rye that is just really really sweet. So kind of kind of an odd balance, but you know, different. And, and I enjoyed it. Definitely the best that I've had. One, maybe not the number one best, the best bottle that I've bought within Colorado. Okay. I've done a tasting that had like a, a single really, really good rye that was out of my price point. Yeah. But, um, but probably the best bottle that, I, that I've bought from a Colorado distillery so far. Well, that's exciting. Awesome. Yeah. Enjoyed it. What about you? What's on your flight tonight? So since I've moved to Ohio, I have decided that it is probably prudent of me to bring on to the podcast an Indiana beer. And so... <laughs> Got him. <laughs> so... <laughs> So that old bait and switch, the old bait and switch. So this is actually a beer that I bought to bribe one of my friends to help me do something at my old house, but he's out of town. So I brought the beer home and now I'm drinking it. So nice. So this is uh, the peanut butter milk stout from Triton uh, Brewing Company. And I believe I don't know if I've had it on the podcast, but I've talked about Rail Splitter, which is their kind of flagship IPA. And yeah. So that that's what I've had from them before. I may have had something, but this is Triton, um, their peanut butter milk stout. And I'm not a huge stout person. Not saying that I dislike mm-hmm. them. It's not, but when I gravitate towards a heavier beer um, or a higher alcohol content beer, I typically go the hoppy route rather than the stout route. Yeah. So I didn't realize until after I had taken the first sip of this beer that it's only 5%. Which oh that is surprising right like I, it's like Guinness or something it's like, like. Guinness <laughs> and it it lacks the alcohol taste which if you're looking for that great right there's no burn on this yep. which stouts have very little of that anyways but I I tasted it and it tastes very watery almost it feels <laughs> yeah. like they took like the eight percent and then just like poured uh, like a you know a good bit of water into and then mixed gotcha, it up like and then canned it yeah. yeah and so in that sense it, it it feels like it's missing like the top half of its flavor profile <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> so so it, it would be a two now nah, it'd probably be a one cheers for me honestly like i i don't know yeah. if i would take it again if someone offered yeah. it it's it was a four pack of 12 ounce so it like was not i'm not drinking yeah. a ton of them but it yeah i don't taste any peanut butter in it it's a peanut butter milk stout. Oh, I don't taste like any- peanut butter is usually like a really like it's like all you taste sometimes, yeah. you know, in these things. Like it can be a really strong flavor. Yeah, and like I guess like I get like the the bitterness that you sometimes get out of peanut butter, but not mm-hmm. any of like the smoothness. I I don't know. It's yeah, yeah. It's a it's a miss for me. But if I brought on just beers that I liked, then we wouldn't have the diversity in flights that we would like to talk about on this podcast. But that's right. That's right. We have to have the lows so we can have the highs. Exactly. Just as hard to climb a mountain as it is to climb out of a valley. All that stuff. Yeah. And but. now I don't blame my friend for not wanting to help me at the house because this is... <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, you just like did not offer enough. Exactly. In, in bribe. Yeah. So... I don't know how I feel about the whole like... I feel like stouts get the brunt of this, like, let's throw in this wacky ass flavor yeah, into like, that is you true. know, so like you get these like coconut stouts and you get like the peanut butter stouts. And I'm like, I've like basically never liked any of these. You right. Know? Like I love stouts and like, but if it's like blank, blank stout, I hate it. Usually. <laughs> That's a really good point. Cause I, I don't think I've ever thought about it, but I think I'm in the exact same boat as you are. Whereas yeah. I really want to like peanut butter stouts, but I don't think I've ever had a peanut butter stout that I have enjoyed. Yeah. Because I don't know. I love peanut butter. Yeah. And I 
I do enjoy stouts, even though mm-hmm. they're not the ones I gravitate towards normally. Yeah. But all of these, like, just peanut butter stouts. And I, I actually, I just thought of one. I did have a cookies and cream stout that was bonkers good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so blank, blank stouts. If it's cookies and cream from Athens, Georgia, yeah, that works. Okay, that'll work that, for you. That'll That's work. That'll work for me. Um, yeah. And there are some exceptions, like, uh, you know, coffee stouts are standard. Mm, you know, I've yeah. had some of those that you like, right? You know, some people will list, like, it's a coffee stout. And it's like, stouts taste like coffee anyway, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, you added coffee beans to the brew or something. Right. So, yeah. it's fine. Like, I, you know, I like it. But I don't know. When it gets just, like, way out on the on the edge there, I don't know. I also, like, if I looked across the, like, all the beers, it's like, why are stouts bearing the brunt of this, like, assault on flavor profile? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm having a bit of a conniption. Like, this, is, this is an I, area I, I get testy about. I think it's probably because the stouts are on the sweeter side of beer. And, mm, probably. and so it's easier to mix in sweet and salty flavors with that. Yeah, true. Whereas like, I don't want a peanut butter IPA. Like that just sounds awful to me. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. so it, I think it masks a lot of flavors fairly well and it complements mm-hmm. a lot of flavors pretty well. And maybe there is a peanut butter IPA out there. I, I mean, I guess I'll try it, but like, it's not, <laughs> it's not something that I typically think of with the hoppy flavors as opposed to the sweet flavors that you t- typically get with a stout. For sure. If I'm going to try a peanut butter IPA, it's going to be like on a flight. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm no, not gonna I'm, buy I'm not going to buy a can of that. But <laughs> <laughs> Much less a you know, four-pack. But Right. But, yeah. yeah, so that is the peanut butter milk stout from Triton Brewing Company, a swing and a miss for me, unfortunately. Yeah. But unfortunate. we do only have you know, good news from here. So That's right. <laughs> we're going to... Now we're on the uphill part. Now we're on the uphill part. So we, we record this separately from the interview with Sherwin. So we will go ahead and splice in the audio right now. Welcome. We have Sherwin Matthews, the lead designer for Steamforge Games. You may know him from some of the awesome games in his portfolio, such as Resident Evil, Horizon Zero Dawn, Monster Hunter, and most recently Bardsung, which is the talk of the town. Everyone online is talking about this, and I like walk past it, and I've seen it in three FLGSs at this point, and it just looks insane. But thank you so much for coming on, Sherwin. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Um, uh, thank you for that intro. Um, that's cool. Well, it's nice to uh, <laughs> nice to see that Bard Song's made <laughs> such an impact. But um, yeah, I, I'm doing pretty well, thanks. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we are super happy to have you on talking about um, your games and the design process that you have gone through with Steamforge Games. And kind of we wanted to highlight Horizon Zero Dawn a little bit during this discussion as Steamforge was kind enough to send us a copy to preview or not I guess not preview it's been out to mm. review and and play and so this is um going to be a really exciting discussion because we kind of to give a background on some of our rating systems we rate games under uh the we call it the mech rating hmm. the mechanics the experience and the components okay. and all of your games have like a 10 out of 10 components. They look incredible. <laughs> they have awesome minis. They have like really cool theming. And so just really excited to see that. Like opening up the Horizon Zero Dawn box is just like a presentation. Oh. Thank you for coming on. So talk to me about Steamforge and your history there. Um, how have, uh, like, t- tell me about your history. Like what, what has led you into your role there and wanting to design and build board games. Uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, 
it's a really interesting journey actually so so i started out way back in the day uh before steamforge even existed uh, as an entity we were literally just a bunch of guys you know who knew each other from our gaming scene and <laughs> i um i met this guy uh, who came into my local gaming club in the uk we have gaming clubs versus what is more in america i know you have more of a sort of friendly local gaming store uh, kind of based um uh, sort of um that's how geeks get together and play games whereas in the uk it tends to be clubs <laughs> versus that we don't really have uh, gaming stores in quite the same vein and uh, this guy came into my into my club and at the time i was club president so helping to run the place so i kind of bounced over to him hey how's it going we chatted for a little bit and he said i'm, I'm bringing this game to kickstarter soon um it's going to be called guild ball and uh, it's uh, it's a soccer game which is um like a a tabletop soccer game which also involves knives and beating each other up which is kind of interesting <laughs> uh, so straight away that's kind of fun and we chatted for a little bit about various different bits and i said well joe you know, i've i've written a few things i'm uh, i'm an author i, I can actually uh, i can jump in and and uh, and help you write some of the law and some of the background for these things so we chatted a little bit about his favorite authors um uh, like Joe Abercrombie and so on and at that point he said okay well I'll tell you what go and run away go away and, and write something for me and we'll see where we get to I went away a week later. I came back for a piece. It's called Match Day, and Matt read it. This Matt Hart is the uh, the man I now know. Um, was that person said? That's incredible. I love this. I want you to write everything. Uh, I was like, okay, well, that's that's kind of cool. Uh, so anyway, so, so yeah. this Kickstarter happened, and uh, people really seemed to like that, and it kind of went along. Um, and then I pretty much from there, I became lead writer for Steamforge Games. Um, so I was writing all of our various different fiction, all of our stories, and so on. Um, and then it got to about the stage uh, at some at some point. So I, I'm sort of working as a lead writer. I'm writing various different fiction for our different bits and pieces. I'm I'm writing introduction and sort of uh, law pieces for stuff like Dark Souls. And then Matt said to me, "I'm making a new game, and I know you've chatted to me about video games you love in the past. And uh, I think you'd be really cool if you could help me design this thing." I'm like, "Okay, what's the game?" He's like, "Resident Evil 2." At which point, I think I actually was to tore his <laughs> arm off. Um, at that point, I was like, yeah, no, I really want to be part of that. That's like my favorite game. I would love to make Resident Evil 2. And, you know, do you know that bit where you kind of have that person who knows that that would be the reaction they got? He's got this real kind of grin on his face where I'm like, okay, you knew that would happen. <laughs> anyway, so at that point, I started um, working as game design development. And from there, I've kind of just gone on and on and on from doing stuff. Um, what's really interesting is the part where, and this is why it's sort of twofold, is the part where... It wasn't until I started doing that, I started thinking back um, over sort of, you know, in random moments about when I was much younger. And remember these small, incident, uh, these small incidents where actually, you know, when I was even at primary school, uh, which is, I guess, elementary for you guys, um, we basically mm -hmm. had something where I decided designing board games. And I'd completely forgotten about that until I kind of started thinking about it. Going, huh, well, I did try and do that, didn't I? I remember spending one afternoon trying to make a labyrinth board game. Yeah, and I got as far as making these little, this drawing on this big white sheet, like the different paving stones where you're going to meet Hoggo outside of the labyrinth and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and I remember, you know, very much a little bit later on kind of writing, um, reading my favorite book at the time and then immediately making Warhammer versions of all the characters in that and that sort of stuff. And at that point, I kind of thought back and thought, oh, maybe I wanted to do this all along. And I just, there's part of my subconscious that kind of led me here. But, um, but yeah, and that's that. And obviously, since then, I've worked on an all, I've had the privilege of working on an awful lot of uh, very exciting titles with a lot of very, very talented people. Um, obviously, within the SFG, uh, we obviously mentioned our sculpting team, they're incredible. 
and all of our uh, design team as well. But then also outside of that, with people like Gorilla, the most pertinent for this podcast, obviously, but also Capcom and Microsoft and various other different things. So. You have been designing board games for a while then. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I ask this question to everyone and they always, you know, no one ever gives me a straight answer. But do you have a favorite project that you've worked on? Or they always, they always say it's, they're like my children. I can't choose. But I'm curious if if maybe one stuck out you know, to you. No, I could give you that. They're all like my children answer. And there would be absolute honest <laughs> in that. But I know you, yeah, that's boring. That's boring radio, right? So if I had to, if I, if I had to pick my absolute favorite, it's got to be, I mean, there there's a very, very special place in my heart for anything Resident Evil. Um, not only because that's my first uh, real sort of game that I made where there's a lot of emphasis on me as lead for it. Um, yeah. Which is obviously Resident Evil 2. But also because... I mean, one of the most exciting things when I made that game was being able to sit there and chat to other Resident Evil geeks. And at that point, I realized that I probably, I'd, I'd sunk like on the original Resident Evil 2 game, just to give you a rough idea, I probably sunk about 500 hours into that of successive playthroughs. And this is a game you finish in about two hours if you know what you're doing. Um, so, <laughs> so I kind of played it quite a lot. And it wasn't until I started chatting to the, to the other people in our community, I realized, okay, I've played this game far too much because I could, you know, we started getting to these chats about every fixed camera angle and how to achieve them in the game, like, and which ones were the rare ones that no one's ever seen before. And at that point, I think at some stage where I was chatting to someone about 2 a.m. about how in the library, if you run underneath the stairs, there's a camera angle that has no reason for it to be there, but super high close up. <laughs> that's the bit where I went, okay, so that's probably it. So with that in mind, I'm going to say Resident <laughs> Evil is my, fa- is my baby. Yeah. That's, oh, that's, that's hilarious. I don't, Don, have you ever played the Resident Evil games? No, no. Okay, this, this is over. That's fine. We're, we're out. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've let you down. Oh, man. Do you find that theme is pretty important to you in getting like getting your personal interest involved in designing a game? It can be. I one of the so to sort of zoom into the design process a little bit, how we approach things. Um, one of the key things we always do is there, there's two steps actually. The first one is to really sit there and play the game. Let's say we're making a game, for example, or whatever the IP is, but a game is mostly obvious to do. So we all play the game. We'll sit there and for Horizon, for example, which is obviously the one for this particular show. Excuse me. I jumped into playing that game and went, right, okay, so let's get it. And let's sit there and play it through for a few hours, understand what the game is, how it works, uh, what sort of tasks do you actually do as part of it, what the gameplay experience is. Uh, the amusing part about Horizon is I started off saying, okay, I'll get the game. I'll play it for a couple of hours on one Friday. So I started at like one Friday afternoon and started playing it. And then I looked up at some point and it's dark outside and it's 3 a.m. And I went, okay, so I've, I've clearly played this for a few more in a few hours. Uh, went, went to bed, woke up the next morning and like, you know, about eight o'clock went, right, okay. Well, I was unconscious for a short while, then woke up about five, uh, yeah, about five hours later. I went, cool, let's go back and play some more of that. And then, you know, looked up at some point, wow, it's three in the morning again. So at, at that point, I think I, uh, Horizon sunk its hooks into me, but... But no, so we pl- we played all that game and really just experience what it is in its totality. So understand, yeah, you know, what is it that makes this game what it is, um, and let that sort of all sink in and lie fallow for a short while. So that way we can kind of think about different ideas and themes. The first stage of anything we do, design-wise, is to identify what we term as the core DNA of that game. Uh, 
So at that stage, mm. what is it that if you're what is it that makes this game what it is? So for example, is it for Horizon? Is it the exploration? Is it the uh, the actual you know huge machines and sort of knocking components off of them? Is it customizing your hunter as you go through the wild? Is it the uh, sort of you know is it the world? Obviously, it's it's all of these things. You know, it's it's about understanding what is the actual player experience because only once you've got that, once you've identified those things, you then go right, okay. So let's try to recreate those key things on the tabletop, which then reflects. So that if I'm a Horizon Zero Dawn fan, I sit there and I see this game, and I go, wow, that's exactly makes me have the same. That has the same sort of um, connection to me as what happens when I play the video game. So that way, they can really experience that, and it doesn't feel jarring. Um, and that's the key thing I think for any of our games that we do. So as a result, we're always fans of everything we make. Inevitably, we always end up becoming that. It's it's very hard to make something, and we wouldn't really be this disingenuous to make something where we don't all love the original license, because otherwise, it's much much harder to zoom in at that level and understand what makes the game tick. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, from never designing a game before in my life, so this this question comes from that angle. Just let me preface it mm. like that. When you are looking to balance a game mm. with your mechanics, but you want to hold true to that theme, do you ever run into mm. issues trying to keep that lore and that theme alive? But just from a board game perspective, it just doesn't work, right? One of the most difficult things in any when you're designing anything is knowing when to let go of something that you really want to include in that game but it just simply doesn't fit for whatever reason. Um, and, and there's oftentimes there's a few different bits and pieces which may come up. Um, and just again, breaking away from Horizon for a moment, one of the things uh, for Resident Evil that we used was uh, if you play the video games, as your character becomes more injured, uh, you start to limp and you obviously stagger around and you, you physically become slower. Mm -hmm. um, that's something which we easily could introduce into the Resident Evil board game without yeah, too much difficulty at all. You just reduce agency as you go on, give the players less actions they can make. However, the the part that didn't really work is that when we actually sat down to test this thing, we realised not necessarily a strict balance thing, but people were just forgetting to do the rule because once they've got a few, once they've picked up a few different injuries or whatever else, they're just playing the game at the same pace as what they've already known. They're forgetting to lose one action or whatever. And the amount of times I sort of watched our playtesters, and then. Yeah, we always do silent playtesting when we're doing with externals a lot of the time. So we'll sit there and just observe rather than interfering with any of the things or jumping in. Oh, by the way, the rule is this. Want to get people's initial reactions to this stuff. And seeing players just forget this nine times out of ten and sort of go, oh, wait, I should have only done three actions that turn. Oh, okay, let's go back, uh, rewind, and I can only do this or this and move some backwards. There's only so many times you can see that before you go, do you know what? Let's just drop that rule. Let's just <laughs> drop that rule. Like, very, very flavorful, but at the same time, if everyone's forgetting to do it, then it's just actually a barrier to it. And I think that's one of the things which tends to be that, that could be quite frustrating if you think something's really key. Um, and if you think it is really important, then obviously you need to find a new way to approach it or to loop that in and actually make that fit in a certain way. Um, right. One of the things for Horizon, which was, I would have loved in retrospect, I would have loved in Horizon to put in the conditions more in the way that they would have worked in they work in the video game. So one of the things in the video game is is where you hit enemies with, uh, let's say, a fire arrow, um, and you hit them with a fire arrow, they don't immediately burst into flame. Every enemy has a fire threshold, and you hit them with successive attack or you know threshold for various different elements. And as you hit them with successive attacks that push those elements up, at some point it will go over that bar, and then of course the thing will then explosion and covered in fire. <laughs> now in our video yeah. game, sorry in our board game, 
purely because keeping track of that for so many distinct enemies is quite a pain. Uh, we, and also has a lot of tokens on the table if that's what you're storing. It just wasn't yeah. feasible. So instead, we had to introduce a thing where if you hit the enemy with this condition, then it, this fire, it just gets fire. Now, it's a shame because I'd have loved to have kept that to more authentic to what the video game was. But at the same time, what is it that makes people excited about playing the video game? What is people's experience? Is it that you shoot someone with a fire arrow and then it's on fire? Or is it the experience of hitting something successively over and over again, slowly building up that until it explodes? A lot of players <laughs> won't even realize that's how it works with the fire arrows, to be honest. That's kind of under the hood mechanics of what the video game has. Veterans will tell you that's exactly how it works, but the, the more casual player just wants to shoot stuff with a fire arrow. So it's kind of stuff like that. <laughs> so with, with all of these kind of tic-tac... Um, rules that you have streamlined for the final product is it in playtesting that you sort of watch those silent playtesters which i think is a really cool way to do that is to not intervene at all and just kind of let them fumble through to just to kind of get a you know unique or a you know genuine feel for how the game works is is that where you start to notice a lot of the mechanics that you decide to keep or alter or can you walk me through that process yeah sure so any game so generally, as, as a starting point for most of our games, we'll start off with a, a design stage where we have the initial uh, hook or the initial game loop. And that's the point where we'll sit there and we'll, and we'll test it or we'll make proof of concepts, prototypes, that sort of stuff, and get a rough idea for what this game is. At that stage, we'll then move on to a little bit further. And that's when we create a design Bible, as in what this product looks like, um, how this game works, and so on. And then we'll go into development. And this is, of course, all internal. And there's no... Well, and there, other than speaking to Gorilla in this case, about what the game's going to look like and showing it to them. But um, outside of that, the actual testing, the actual development is then done, moves into part of the cycle. And there's a lot of work to be done before it's ready to see anybody in terms of playtesting, because at that point, we're really trying to go, right, so how does this mechanic work? And does that actually survive when you start thinking about a larger game? Or is that just a cool thing that we could do in design stage, completely isolated from anything else? And we can build it up slowly. You know, how does this affect, if we make a change here, how does that affect the rest of the game? What other systems do we need to put in place to represent a thunder jaw, uh, for example, versus something we have like a lancelot or whatever else. And as we expand that on that, there's a point where you get to where there's lots of cycles, there's lots of uh, development cycles, there's lots of stuff where lots of iteration, lots of very quick rapid fire kind of changing, at which stage you get something which is really a prototype you're ready to then send out to the world. And we'll have externals that we use, um, who are like trusted playtest groups who will kind of get... Um, I mean, early access is the best way to describe it, but they'll work with us at the earlier stages to kind of see this and identify what works for them, what doesn't work for them. And at that point, we'll get feed. Yeah, we'll send that very targeted feedback research uh, or very targeted feedback questions. Yeah, how did it feel to use this particular weapon? How did this enemy react from your mm -hmm. tabletop? Um, what was yeah? What was the strength in this mission? Yeah, what were what did you guys feel like when you played this particular thing? Yeah, yeah. Were you hurried? Did you feel a sense of urgency? Was this something where um, it felt quite pressing to how you know, how you guys played around the table, that sort of stuff. And that's where we start to collate and, and sort of really work with these teams to kind of understand, okay, so let's pull in these different uh, aspects. So by the time we actually get to um, to that point where we're actually sitting out for more, and all of those are blind playtests to a point, but the point where we have different teams to focus on different elements of things as we go along. We have some teams... So some some uh, playtest groups are really focused around law, and they you know 
and that, that for them it's all about storytelling and every mm. game is a journey mm. we have other groups who are very much more mechanically minded and they're almost like a sort of high-end competitive gamers and they'll they, yeah they won't care about the story whatsoever they'll just care about how kind of the game balance is focused that sort of stuff it's always important to get lots of different uh, perspectives on these different things because ultimately you don't want to make a game that appeals to all of the People who want to tell a story, but then mechanically players can exploit it too easily. The other way around, you don't want to have the, right. the hardcore mechanic focus to like competitive wargame level and then have like a whole bunch of old people who go, Yeah, but there's just no storytelling here. So it's important right. to draw from all those disparate groups. And by the time we get to the stage that we just mentioned with the uh, the sort of true blind testing, at that stage, it's more like sanity checking to make sure that you know the game doesn't fall down in a heap somewhere. Someone's not going to do something unexpected and go, hang on a minute. If I do this, if I shoot this arrow into this enemy and that causes fire, but then you over there do this thing, then the rules suddenly don't tell us how to resolve this event that just occurred there and now the whole thing fell down. That sort of stuff is really what <laughs> that level of testing is about. Or at that stage, it's more about, here's a rule book. How easy is it to follow what you're doing on this and learn the game? And at that stage, it's a very different type of development. And I'm sure you've had playtesters find the most random interactions that you would have never thought. Oh, of. do you know I should have thought I should have thought some examples on that one, but yeah, there was there's there's one guy um, there's one guy, and again I'll I'll break away a little bit from Horizon for a second, but there was one yeah. guy on Resident yeah. Evil who realised that the rules say you have to be adjacent to a typewriter to use it, but there's nothing to say that you can't use it for a wall. Uh, so as a result, he was kind of right. He was kind of running through like rooms, kind of doing like I'll just I'll just click through this wall basically. And I'm not going to lie, I actually left that in the in the end game purely because one, most people won't make that connection because that's a cognitive yeah. connection with that. Well, I obviously can't use it for a wall, right? And the second one is because I kind of like that old school speedrunner glitch. Uh, where someone's worked out a way of right. like glitching for a wall to do something. So I quite like that. So yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really funny. I think we ran into that with um what is it captain sonar where we were oh. like shooting missiles over islands you mm. know <laughs> like i don't think the rules explicitly say you can't do this right <laughs> it just is probably implied we our group has not pulled that game back out that, that <laughs> evoked a strong <laughs> arguments i think i think every group has a game like that yep right. everybody to the back of the sub tilt it up yeah <laughs> So you used a, a term there that I wanted to just like pick your brain on a little bit. Sure. So you used the term, um, I think it was design Bible. Yeah. Um, can you talk me through like what that kind of means for your team and what you use that for? Sure. Uh, design Bible, I mean, it can be many, many things depending on what the game is. But um, if I think about Horizon, it was really something where the design Bible for that is simply, um, these are the core, these are the core identity of what this game is. You know, these are the core pillars of the game. So, mm. excuse me, it's about hunting. It's about uh, the large machines and how they work. It, it's about um, this sense of, you know, everyone has to get individual glory in this particular case. Um, this idea, of, and, and obviously the core identity and the core rules that we had at this stage for these different things is that establishes what that is. So this is how you accumulate glory. This is how, you know, this is how the hunter decks work in terms of how you build up your hunter and level them up. And this is how, um, and you know, you use the decks as their stamina, but it also represents their ammunition and their skills. Um, this is how the game looks in terms of roughly what it's played on, like these boards laid out, how many of them there are. And these are the rules where you can lay them out in any format you want or alternatively else. You know, machines follow trails, follow paths as they go through that sort of stuff, patrol routes. So there's some of that in there. There's also elements where they're something that the end user wouldn't necessarily ever see, where we talk about complexity. So we would have something where uh, we say, so the complexity of this game is, you know, sort of low to mid or high or whatever else, wherever we're pitching it to. And that's going to be very much based on 
um, what we think is best for the audience or what we think is the best for the uh, the target personas for the type of people who will play and enjoy this game. It's really that's a really important point because one of the things that we've become very aware of, or we already were very aware of when we started making video game license uh, products, is a lot of our audiences are people who just love Horizon or just love Resident Evil or Dark Souls or whatever else. Mm-hmm. They aren't necessarily tabletop gamers. Their most exposure they've ever had to a tabletop game is something like Monopoly or Snakes and Ladders. So there's this point you don't want to zoom straight in with this really heavy game that they just simply have no experience of and no ability to play. <laughs> so you want to create rule books and experiences that kind of talk them through um, things in a sort of much more uh, zoomed-in level and takes their time to to establish how they work and also at the same time doesn't overlay loads and loads of mechanics to work. Um, and that sounds slightly odd in, a, in after in a post-COVID um, world where everyone went online to play D&D for a year solid. But, right. but, it's, something where, <laughs> but it's something where we want to you know, we want to slowly introduce themes and concepts to players in a way that's digestible and they can understand and they can pick up. So these are, these are all key things that are part of what Design Bible says. And, and that's something where... In our, in our, for us anyway, the game designer or product owner, um, if we have one of those for this project, which we do, will be someone who really thinks about how to look at the end user facing stuff. And that's what there'll be constant touch points throughout the game's development uh, cycle to make sure that we don't ever stray away from that stuff, that the design bubble stuff is always here every single time. So we never suddenly find ourselves with things changing and warping a little bit through the development process. So we have a game that's far too complex at the end and we kind of all sit there and go, oh, God, wish we'd like, we, yeah, wish we'd. Well, once you get to a certain <laughs> stage, you can't push that stop button and then revert backwards and fix it, right? Right. So we need to make sure right. we always hit that. So, so with these games that you have built around IP, a lot of these games are built around IP. You said that you kind of had this idea of, you know, a low to mid complexity oh. rating for the fans of the game. So is that set like right as the IP is set, or is that kind of further along in the design cycle after you've kind of discussed with the team or whoever the design uh, team is? is to try and figure out what that bible looks like no that's always done uh, that's always done in the early stages we want to part of the early stages of any game is understanding again the personas or the the audience the target audience so who's going to play this game and, and how they're going to interact with the game and yeah obviously there are a lot of people out there who do who are familiar with board games and so on and you know will be wanting to play this thing and, and won't necessarily be daunted by a large rule book. But at the same time, there's as many people who won't have done that. So it's so it's always key to understand that. And, and it's such an important factor for any of our games to make sure that that we keep track of that. Because if we ever find a stage where you know development as as rules as things go, when you're making a game, it's so, so easy to fall into the trap of just layering on, oh, here's another rule we can throw in. Oh, here's another rule we can throw in. Here's another rule we can <laughs> throw in just to make this thing much more um, hyper-focused around how we can do things. Really good example of a horizon is when we were bringing the Deathbringer. And um, the Deathbringer uh, has, like, if you do a certain amount of damage to it with fire, um, this sort of power core comes out of the thing. Uh, so it can effectively cool down, which is the point in the video game where, right, attack the power core, that's the weak point, do loads and loads of damage to it. And that's how it works. Um, we had loads of discussions about how to best implement that into the actual board, into the tabletop game when it came to what the Deathbringer was. Uh, but at some stage, we just realized this is just becoming so complex. We're layering in so much into this, mm-hmm. like in terms of special rules and exceptions and so on. We're having introduced like, you know, vulnerable points to this. We're having to introduce kind of, you know, the, the fire buildup I talked about and change how fire arrows work for this one particular enemy. We're talking about the ways that you target stuff and then having an interactive uh, component that you can't initially attack 
and suddenly appears after a certain <laughs> time. We talk about flipping the card right. over when anything happens. And there's a point where someone is looking at the rule book so much and they're not actually head down in the game. And at that stage, right? Yeah, we need to walk away from it. So that's a key thing where we it's always important to establish that early on. Because if we were saying for a high complexity, you know, player, if that's what we're aiming for, then stuff like that is fine. We can just layer loads and loads of that in. We're talking about an audience which mm-hmm. just laps that sort of stuff up. But that's not for everyone. Right. And it's important to understand that because obviously that's a big part of you know any um of anything that we've sort of, you know, when we're discussing this game, it's a big part of what its identity is as much as the actual theme of it as well. Absolutely. So working with a, with a company, like some of your games, you have been the sole credited designer on the, on, in the game. And then there are games that you've been working on where there are multiple designers. When you're working with multiple designers, how does that process look like? Is there, you know, you're each responsible for a specific part of the game. It's a collaborative environment. Can you talk me through that? A yeah, little? we're all, um, we're all it's, everything is always a collaborative um, effort. I mean, obviously, even if design and development is one fa- is one part aspect of our games, but at the same time, there's an awful lot of stuff that goes into, you know, graphic design, goes into sculpting, goes into, um, you know, uh, production logistics all sorts of different stuff marketing yeah. like i don't think any of us would be anywhere near conceited enough to say oh yes i do everything <laughs> um, but, but <laughs> in terms of zooming in to design development in truth there's this name that appears as lead as uh, as game concept on a lot of our games uh, which is matt Hart, our creative director and matt had generally was involved in every single one of our projects at some stage it very even in the very early stages matt will initially discuss and sort of sign off at any level what that is and mostly matt will have some level of involvement with all of us in terms of spitballing different ideas around bouncing things off of us <laughs> and, and in his own way the way that matt generally works is a lot of it is sounding board like he'll just throw loads and loads of ideas at us until eventually we kind of you know that's that's really his function is to throw loads of different ideas until he's comfortable that we know what we're talking about and we actually have a lot of stuff um ready to go for what this game is and build it up that way and matt will inevitably get involved in some of the design process as well as part of that um and sort of you know help us with different suggestions and stuff once you've actually moved away from that um we normally find that what generally tends to happen with most of our games is we'll have a lead designer and a lead dev. Um, and lead designer is really around that sort of high-level concept design um, and coming up with rules and bits and pieces um, in initial stages. Developer is then someone who then runs with the game and then builds it out with testing, successive cycles, that sort of stuff, um, layering in kind of design at a more zoomed-in level, so scenario design or you know kind of hunter design or enemy design, that sort of stuff, and then sort of gets those bits and pieces done. And obviously the, the lead design may also factor into that, may also sort of help out here and there and work together. It's obviously everything is a collaborative effort. Um, and of course, every project is different and every, every each one of yeah. us is different. We'll work in different ways. Some of us are very roll up sleeves, kind of dive into it and start getting going. And then there's others who have a more of a step back and holistic approach to the whole project. So very cool. At the end of your, at the end of your last, uh, answer, you were talking about, you were starting to get into like component design. And I think that's, that's an area I'd like to hear a little bit more about. So, um, you have, you know, you have a game, you have the concepts, you have the core mechanics kind of drafted or whatever. Um, you have your IP. Um, can you talk me through like, okay, how do, how do I start going about creating, you know, a series of, of, of items or, or monsters or whatever, just kind of like starting to flesh that game out. How do, how do I go about that? And also, you know, how am I trying to keep, um, uh, I guess balance or along the way, trying to trying to fill out the game to get like the low level and the high level um, kind of going. Yeah, and and that's that's something which is going to change from game to game in terms of what it is. But if we're looking at something yeah. like Horizon, it's really thinking about what is that user journey. What what's the 
what's the zoomed in uh what's like the elevator pitch for what this is you know in the case of horizon um obviously massive spectrum of different machines we can throw into this loads of different tribes um mm. of hunters and all sorts of things like that um loads of potential places to draw from what does this look like what's the most concise way to deliver this to the end user where they're gonna you know the horizon fan and they're gonna recognize how this works or or understand this you know is it to zoom into one particular region of the game is it to zoom into one particular tribe and build it around that is it something where you want to theme it around a particular um a particular period in the game you know what's the what's the best way to approach this and also at the same time kind of what does your actual product look like? Is this something where, you know, because we could very easily if Horizon said, you know what, one big mega box, it's going to be as big as your garage and it's going to have literally every single machine in it <laughs> and go from there. It's only yeah. going to cost you like a thousand dollars. Amazing, right? Um, so yeah. so we could well have done that. Alternatively, we go, okay, or we could, you know, break it into more digestible chunks so that way players don't feel like they have to mortgage their house. And they can also, we could also see players kind of look at this thing and go, cool. So this is set around the start of the game. Yeah, where we're kind of, um, yeah, we're in Mother's Cradle or whatever else, and with Anora running around and we're hunting a sawtooth, or, and this is something where, oh, I want to add a big machine to this. I love the Thunderjaw. Great, go buy the Thunderjaw model, and then you can put this thing on the table and you can fight against that. And I think that's the key thing. So, as you say, it's identifying what type of enemies do we want to see in this thing and for each of those enemies what do they represent or what do they add to the gameplay how do they work in that particular way what hunters do we want to represent and why what what's the difference here like everything has to have also a value to the game you don't ever want to put in something that's just the same as something else for the sake of putting it in there so it's it's how you want mm-hmm. to build that up so for example in horizon's case we we knew straight away obviously a big core identity to what the to what the machines are is the watcher the Watcher is key is clearly a very, very important kind of piece to this. So, yep, cool. Let's grab the Watcher. And that's going to be something where it's going to try and alert the other the other machines to what the hunter's doing. Yeah, we want to have, you know, mm. our our boss, as it were. Who we're going to have there? Well, we could put in one of the huge machines, but yeah, let's at this point keep it relatively straightforward, so a small scale, because we like that early stages of the game, because that's where most people will definitely have experienced that. And people who tried the game and then necessarily mm. didn't get along with it or whatever moved on, but love the visuals, that's what they'll know as well. So we'll put in the sawtooth as that. And immediately we suddenly go, right, so that helps us with understanding what the other types of machines that you can encounter around here are and what we can do with each of those in terms of how to represent them. So we have a scrapper, which has range attacks. Okay, fantastic. And obviously a very hostile creature. We can then put in um, something that's a bit more um, relaxed, like a strider, where it's all about, or, or a... Um, or a grazer and those things are in there because we wanted to have something where hey they break away they don't necessarily attack you the danger there is actually they're all going to run off the table without you given a chance to kill them all and that mm-hmm. all of these things require different gameplay to actually try and manipulate how to play against them to, to to bounce for players to bounce off of so that way they all represent something different in what this game is and obviously that then zooms into how the hunters work as well you know how do we want the hunters to work do we want them to represent their different tribes and you know and if so how do they do that in their own way? Obviously, they all have their own identity. Um, how do we build this thing up? One of the nicest things we ever um, we ever had, or sorry, for a personal experience, I ever had is when we went over to Gorilla uh, most recently and sort of sat down with the video uh, with the board game, having made it. And we had this amazing day where we spent the whole day at Gorilla just playing loads of games with with the people at Gorilla. And at some point, this guys came, these, these three guys came over to me and they, they all look blessed and they're all kind of, you know, a couple of them look slightly nervous and kind of, you know, like the gorilla have been keeping them in a basement for about 10 years kind of thing. It's all this sort of coder <laughs> thing. And um, 
<laughs> yeah, and then they kind of went, oh, can we play? And I'm like, sure. So sit down. And I've been chatting to people all day long. So I'm like, oh, hey, go, so what do you guys do? And then, like, oh, we design the AI for the machines. And at that point, I'm immediately going, okay, this better be really good then. Like, because you guys, like, but like, suddenly I'm looking these guys. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, so you really know what this is then. So we kind of started playing the game. And we got, we, got about, we got about half hour in, and they kind of finished their demo, and they finished, and they're all smiling, and they're all really happy. And I'm like, so how was that? And they were like, that's amazing. You've really captured how our machines move around. You've really, yeah, with the way wow. that the behaviors work, you've layered in the extra complexity we didn't think was possible in a tabletop environment. Like, this is really cool. We love this. It was so. That's yeah, going to be so satisfying, satisfying to hear. If, if you talk, I actually have a bit of a warm feeling <laughs> thinking about it now. In terms of, in terms yeah. of job satisfaction level or cool stories, that's one of my favorites I can have over from over the years. Uh, when oh, I'm, I'm sure, there talking yeah. to these guys. But it was so interesting because from their perspective, they didn't care what the hunters could do. They're looking at the machines. Like their whole difference was fo- everyone else is running <laughs> yeah. around focused solely on my hunter is a rock star. They're going to do everything, right? And then these guys, oh, yeah, my hunter's kind of cool, but let's what all these machines can do. It's really, really interesting. So. <laughs> so this is like a callback way into the episode, but the you mentioned one of the mechanics in Horizon Zero Dawn mm-hmm. is the deck which is all of your items and everything that you can use to interact in the game is also your health. And that I think is one of the coolest mechanics I have seen. It's so like, like you have all these health tracks in other games and then your deck and it's just like, it's a way to combine it. And also like losing health is like worse than just losing health. And so I like, I don't actually know if that translates to the video game at all, but like just in my initial plays, I was like, this is a really cool design. So sorry, I oh, need to throw that no, out there. Just- that's, uh, <laughs> that's one of Matt Hart's uh, uh, ones that he threw in there from, uh, from the design process. I remember a few of us scratching our heads going, huh, how does, how's that going to work? Or is that, is that a thing? But, but yeah, <laughs> a lot of things, Matt is a creative genius and throwing that in there. And ultimately, you know, once you actually play it through a few times, you're like, okay, this is actual gold. I'm like, yeah, this is, um yeah but it is i mean the decks in in horizon represent your stamina effectively it's your will to fight it's your it's not just your ammunition it's your preparedness for what it is as well the more stuff you do the more you're running out of ammunition the more that you know your your hunter is getting tired running around under the sun hunting these machines and everything else because one of the key things we wanted to do in in horizon is really establish the idea that these hunters aren't aloy they're not these superhuman characters that can go run around do everything Mm -hmm. they are much more human and thus (laughs) that kind of makes them feel a bit more vulnerable, a bit more fragile. And there's also at the same time, right. speaking away from a law perspective, yeah, a really cool thing that we try to put in a lot of our games is this idea of, um, well, it's always risk reward. And this idea of um, kind of, uh, what's, I'm trying to think the best way we all want to describe it, but it's something to do with kind of the, uh, the agony of choice. Like it's something where you go, Oh, I could do all this really, really cool mm. stuff. But that leaves me really exposed to, to kind of retaliation <laughs> or whatever else so yeah. you always want to constantly carefully measure your gameplay because that's where a lot of the skill stuff comes in i saw um in the same yeah. gorilla demo i was going to talk about uh i saw it talked about it slightly earlier we had um there's one group of players i sat there playing with and one one and they one of the guys very quickly went okay so i identify purely mechanically went okay so i identify that if i move very quickly if i sprint in this game or i make attacks the range attacks and stuff i'm using up my health bar I don't want to do that. So I'm going to walk everywhere and yeah. make melee attacks, which is basically free. And then so three turns on, like the other guy across the table is kind of killing everything in the room. He's running around there. Everything's exploding <laughs> around in parts of flying off machines and all this cool stuff. And and the, and the guy who's sitting there playing the service is looking at him and going, this isn't fair. I'm losing. And it's like, well, yeah, it's a risk reward game. Like 
this guy's taking a whole bunch of risks. If he yeah. gets hit, he's dead. Like, you know, he's thrown all of his stamina and everything. <laughs> he's got loads of machines. But, but he's playing in a sensible enough way that he's not he's not playing truly wild. He's just going, I'm going to go after that machine, then throw everything at it until it's dead. So then that way, I've definitely got the kill. It's completely dead. <laughs> I can then sit there and craft in the grass while I'm waiting for the next one to move into position and go on to that. Meanwhile, you're still about right. a mile away, slowly trudging through the, you know, trudging along the lane trying to get to us. <laughs> and by the time you get here, I've mm. killed everything. And it's, but then the flip side is, yeah. is that that's where a lot of the skill comes in because Horizon is a semi-competitive game. So a lot of it is kind of what you would do is run into position, and while that guy's doing everything, like, oh, I've killed everything in the room. Yeah, like, here's a small arrow shooting at that machine there. <laughs> Not going to do anything except to alert it. Now it knows where you are. I'm just going to step back and watch you get murdered because <laughs> that's, that's what this game is. So that, that's kind of, yeah, there's always that element to it as well. That's hilarious. So like we have a lot of listeners that are interested in design that maybe they've, you know, toyed around, they, they've created the labyrinth as you were talking about earlier, but, or they've been further along in their journey. Do you have any advice to aspiring designers that you can give? I get asked this a lot. Um, the best the best thing if you're looking at designing is really to roll up your sleeves and, and get involved and it is you know your first game you're going to make is going to be absolute garbage your second game you're going to make is going to be absolute garbage your third game you make is going to be slightly better garbage and it's something where <laughs> you've just got to keep at it over and over and over and it's okay to do lots of iterations of something like a lot of don't don't there's a lot of aspects to it where people think they can sort of sit there in totality and go, I'm gonna design a Horizon Zero Dawn, or I'm gonna design, yeah, you know, this massive game, you know, pick whatever your favorite <laughs> game is that and and run away with it. And yeah, you may well have an idea in your head where you can do that, and that's what that looks like. But the most important thing is to zoom straight into a core mechanic, like a core loop. All of our games start off this way. We sit there and go, Do you know what would be really cool? XYZ. And you'll make you'll make mm. a, a loop that represents X and maybe even Y and probably not have a chance to do Z. And at that point, you'll then go, right, so this is my core loop. Is this engaging? Is this something where I sit there and go, oh, that's really compelling. I want to play this over and over. How do I expand upon that? And it's going to take a whole bunch of time for you. You're going to come up with, I don't know, 20 of those different things before you eventually hit on one which actually really sticks and you can start to think about playing something else too. We can start growing out in that way. And a key thing that you should always do with this is, you know, is is think about sort of layering that on. And all the time, what you're doing is honing your experience. All your time is you're just getting better. It's like any muscle. You know, the more you work it out, the better, the stronger it becomes, and the more involved that will be. And that's one aspect of it. The other is just playing lots and lots and lots of different games. Like you know, just well, mostly because <laughs> you see what works for other people's games. Yeah. What makes it really, you know, what makes things really tick. What you as a gamer really like doing. What you really enjoy. By only by playing lots of different types of games, you'll pick up on these different ideas and see this really cool stuff that people have done. And obviously, I'm not saying copy anything else that anyone's done, but but <laughs> you, you kind of get an idea of going, ah, this is really cool. Like, you know, I would do right. this differently in this way. Cool, then do it differently in this way. Yeah, fold that into one of your mechanics. Or if you see yeah. something that you think is just really interesting, the way that a car flip happens at a certain time, or you love the stamina in Horizon Zero Dawn, think about how you're going to have something similar in what your game is. Um, and then go from there. So a lot of that is that in terms of actually moving into the industry, um, that one I'd really say is getting involved in playtesting. A lot of, you know, a lot of voluntary playtesting. Okay. Lots mm. of companies like us and various others will kind of have playtesting groups of people who, you know, are trusted playtesters that we use for various different things. Get involved in that because if nothing else, it really gives you a lot of experience into the creative pro, you know, the process of how games actually go through, the sort of things that questions you are being asked, because that will help you think about your own game as well. 
um, if you're if you're being asked how did you feel about X Y Z, you know mm. what was this you're looking at or whatever, you can then start to learn how to. Oh, maybe I'll apply that to the game I'm making and think about how I approach it that way. Lots of there, lots of stuff like that. You also get you to actually speak to and have, you know, a, a, a sort of relationship with a lot of the developers out there. So you can actually then talk to someone. Yeah, you know, if you have got an interesting idea, it's easier to then talk to me or whoever, you know, about this other idea. Yeah. It's also interesting to get some advice about different bits and pieces or to, to understand the industry a lot more. Absolutely. That's that's great advice. So thank you for coming on. Um Dalton, were there any other questions that you wanted to ask before we kind of closed it out? Um no, I I did want to just say that, you know, I appreciate that um the perspective on just getting involved, I think, um, you know, specifically here in in the states, but obviously elsewhere too, we I think have a real culture around like a fear mm. of failure, right? And and that failure is really seen as a um, as a bad thing. Um, and, and so just having kind of that encouragement and that and that word to like, hey, just get out there and, and fail and and see it as a as that growth opportunity and as that learning experience, right? And get those kind of like notches on your belt, um, and 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 kind of trying to like work against the shame that can be around that. Um, that's really helpful to hear from someone in, in your position. So I just, you know, I wanted to say that I appreciate that. Oh, that thank you. From you. I mean, ultimately it's like anything, right? Do you, do you think you're going to walk into the Cobra Kai dojo and immediately take on Johnny? And if you don't, if, if, if the answer is no, yeah, you're probably not going to be able to do it. Like, I'm not saying you're not a prodigy that can do that. Yeah. Um, but, but, but you're it's right. like, a, you know, and designing anything is exactly that. You're not going to walk in and suddenly come up with, yeah, spiel de jour. You're not going to walk, you're not going to suddenly come up with terraforming Mars or, or a Gloomhaven or a Bardsung mm. or whatever, you know, whatever way you want to look at that. That simply doesn't work that way, even purely because you might have the most amazing design chops in the world. I guarantee as soon as you hit reality of, of actually production in terms of how much it costs to think you simply make things or how many things you could fit into that box, mm. you will very, very quickly have to revise your ideas of, okay, I can't do this. So at that point, you know, it, it's definitely that. And uh, the only way you're going to get there is through experience, is through getting those XP points and leveling up. <laughs> That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. So I, I have to okay. end with the question. How does it feel to have Bardsung out and available to the public? I mean, it was a very successful Kickstarter. If I recall right, it was over like a million pounds raised. I mean, beautiful, incredible campaign game. How does it feel to have it in the hands of people who love it. Uh, in, I mean, all of all of our games have this magical <laughs> moment where uh, I'm going to give you a long-winded answer. Apologies in advance. Um, no, all of our games have this magical moment where my imposter syndrome kicks in like you wouldn't believe, and I find myself sitting there going, because <laughs> testing for a lot of our stuff is basically like prototype cards built in PowerPoint, and you know things held together with sticky back sticky back tape and and kind of blue tack and yeah. um and kind of you know i'm moving around <laughs> proxy models of like you know stuff like for example horizon zero dawn started off um in a in a bar in amsterdam where matt and i were waiting to get on a plane <laughs> we were moving around pint glasses and beer bowls uh, to represent represent watches <laughs> um so there's lots of stuff like that that's my right, kind exactly, of prototyping right. so <laughs> we need another yeah, model more beer got it. That's exactly <laughs> it. and uh, we've really bemused sort of dutch waiters standing around going, what are you guys doing like yeah why are these two weird english guys getting excited and shouting at each other so so that's the thing but but no so you know there's this magical point of any game that you make where it goes from being that on your table um and lots of bits of cut bits of paper and lots of kind of you know bits of colored card and models from a variety of other games and just dice and with like stickers on them to represent different numbers or whatever else to suddenly that game 
is actually a thing where, hey, the, wait, there's models and there's laid out cards and there's a board and all this other stuff. And then you immediately kind of have this thing going, I really hope this game is as good as I think it is. Because that, that's the first thing that goes through my head anyway, because <laughs> that's the imposter syndrome kicking in. But, but the other part is it's always incredibly surreal to see this thing that has existed as a prototype for so many months on your table suddenly appear as an actual tangible thing. And it's incredibly mm. surreal to see that land of people, but it's insanely humbling to see the response of the community. There are so many people out there who are passionate about this product in terms of any of us, any of our games, to be fair, but but it's insanely humbling to have people from all around the world suddenly sit there and go, you know, this is incredible. Let me talk to you about my experience of playing this. Like we met the hermit and we didn't know the name of the hermit. So it went horribly wrong for us, but you know, but then we met the dwarf prospector and oh my God, what an asshole he goes, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Loads of different, <laughs> loads and loads of different stories like that, which is really cool. And I think that the passion of our communities is such that, it's i can only ever describe it as humbling and you know very daunting to approach anything because they are so invested in what our product is and they are so passionate about it and it's always a slightly surreal experience because ultimately i always feel like this this geek that kind of had a you know had a lucky shot to kind of actually go and make games and i, I never mm -hmm. there's um i always find like i know what my shot was in terms of getting the opportunity to do this stuff and i'm not necessarily someone who is perhaps the most gifted at what game design is. Um, I know, yeah. You know, I always feel like when I sit down with our team, I'm not necessarily the most intelligent voice in our room, or I am not necessarily the person who has the most natural ability for it, or is the deepest thinker. What I normally apply to a lot of our games is just brute force, kind of tenacity and kind of willingness to just roll up my sleeves <laughs> and work and work and work until it's done, and however long it takes. So, whenever a game lands like that, it's always just this feels like this massive reward for hard work. Um, which is always really, really nice. So, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've been okay. So, I've I've been traveling a good bit, but I've seen this game in Minnesota. I've seen this game in Denver. I've seen this game in Indiana, where I'm at. I well, I guess I'm in Ohio now. I've seen this game in. There's one other place where I saw it. Uh, Chicago. And I just like I, I just like to go visit FLGSs wherever, and it's just everywhere, and like it's all over online. So it's it's really exciting to to see that and talk to you and hear your side of that story. So, yeah. so thank you for coming on. I want to open the floor to you to say to give you the opportunity to tell people where to find you or plug any upcoming events, games, or whatever to kind of uh send people cool. off uh well i mean you can not that i have much uh social media interaction much things but you can find me on twitter at, at sherwin's agenda um obviously do please do follow all the steamforge socials um because obviously we have various different bits and pieces including if you're an old school runescape player that's a kickstart that's coming up very very shortly so <laughs> i'm so so, uh, so yep come and enjoy yeah. that one by all means um, otherwise, um, yeah, upcoming events. So obviously there's Gen Con, depending on when this actually comes out. I don't know if you release things, but Gen Con certainly is one to look out for. I'll be there playing a whole bunch of Bardsung and Horizon with people, which is cool. So stop by if nothing else, just say, hey, if you're not going to play some games, always happy to chat to people. I mean, that's one of the best parts of what my job is, is getting to interact with people and chat to everyone. Um, the other one, uh, if you're in the UK, is UK Games Expo, which is, what, a couple of weekends away now. Um, so that's one good one to try. Otherwise, I mean, there's very different shows that are going on. We're, we obviously have a presence where we go to just about everything. So, so definitely that. It's definitely it's definitely show season right now. And now that everything's starting to open up again uh, in a post-COVID world, 
it's really exciting to actually get on the road and see some people again. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Excellent. Yeah, so we this will be out before Gen Con, probably not before the UK Games Expo, but I will be at Gen Con, so I'll definitely swing by. And cool, I'll see and in the meantime, the just so that way we have good recording. Thank you for stopping by and seeing me at the, J- the Games Expo, if you did. Really, really appreciate that. It was really, really awesome of you, man. Thanks, <laughs> yeah. You're the best. <laughs> yeah, of course, anytime. <laughs> well, thank you, Sherwin. Thank you for coming on. Um, and cheers. We'll talk to you all very soon. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Peace.